The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. John Paz, and with me as always is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, as well as one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you today? Greetings from Knoxville, Tennessee. It's always a good day in Knoxville, and uh, I am doing tremendous uh, because we've got a lot of great things that, that have happened and are going to continue to happen. Yeah, you're saying great day, Knoxville. Please tell us the latest on JPWA, because I'm hearing some good news coming out of the, your camp there. Great news, JPWA. We will reopen June 1st, 2020, uh, with a brand-new 12-week course, and it goes through August 21st, I believe. Um, I've already reached out to some of the people who have filled out applications during all this Corona crisis stuff, and we are looking so forward. I know I'm looking forward to to getting back in the swing of things. We are going to have everything sanitized, cleaned, and make sure everyone is uh, without a temperature. We're going to take everybody's temperature. We're going to make sure we have plenty of hand sanitizer and uh, go out of our way to make sure that this is a uh, clean, safe reopening on June 1st, uh, which is just about two weeks away as we are taping this or recording mm-hmm. this. Is there such thing as tape anymore? Is that even uh, apropos to say or correct? Slowly, no, it's slowly dying off. Kind of yeah. passe, old to say. Yeah, well, so anyway, as we record this, I guess, it, it, two weeks from now, we will open up on a Monday, June 1st. And you can go to jpwrestlingacademy.com for all information and applications. And I am so looking forward to this. I love it. Is there anything that the you know the wrestlers should do prior to that? I mean, should they you know bring their own hand sanitizer and all that? All kind of like what, what should they do when they come back? Uh, very good question. Uh, I I when I wrote on the. Uh, the release, I, I mentioned on the second part of it that everyone needs to bring a clean shirt to change into, a towel. Uh, we will have sanitizer at, at JPWA, and I'm going to steam clean the canvas as well as spray it off uh, before and after each practice. Spray it off. Spray, spray sanitizer. We have a solution. 
that we're going to spray on it as well and the ropes, and we just have to be diligent. But everyone can certainly bring uh, an ex- extra T-shirt as well as a towel. And, uh, yeah, if you want to bring your own hand sanitizer too, that might help. But we're going to do everything we can uh, to to abide by the guidelines and make sure that everyone is well and safe. Do you think that when the guys come back, the guys and girls, do you think that they're still going to be in shape, or do you think they're going to have to get that ring rust off? Uh, the only way to get in ring shape is is to be in the ring, in my estimation, in my opinion. Uh, you can do all the cardio in the world in your off time. It's not the same as being in ring shape. So I expect a few uh, it's going to take some people, um, it's going to take longer than others to get back in ring shape. But, uh, times, uh, I, I remember vividly, uh, when I broke my ankle and I was off for six weeks in Houston, coming back for the first time, I was, uh, a little anxious and wasn't sure about my footing and, and, positioning in the ring and um but that's coming off a broken ankle and i think that uh of course back then we didn't have a i didn't have a wrestling school to go in and and get back in shape uh with but now uh we'll see i i think i know of course nobody's been able to wrestle All, all the shows have been shut down but uh we'll see who who takes to it like a fish uh back in water, so to speak, and and who still needs to uh, take your time. So we'll we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, it's just going to be an interesting process. I know that. Love that the uh, JPWA is returning, but today's episode is all about Mid-South Wrestling. This promotion began as an NWA territory, actually NWA Tri-State, by Leroy McGurk, basically in the 50s. So Tri-State eventually became Mid-South Wrestling in 1979, and good old cowboy Bill Watts took over. Mid-South was basically promoted Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, until its collapse and closed as the UWF, Universal Wrestling Federation, in 1987. But got it you know, obviously refer to you. How did you get your start in Mid-South? When was it? And who called you and brought you in? Let me say right off the bat, since we're going to talk about Mid-South, because mm-hmm. that, that, could, that could be um, uh, a very misperceived territory. I, I first wrestled there, um, had my second match on TV there after following Boyd Pierce from Houston on Friday night back to uh, – uh, to Shreveport, Louisiana, shortly after uh, Bill Watts had taken over from Leroy, or, or people want to say he, he kind of just took it. And uh, this was in 1979. So it was that was my first um, meeting Bill Watts, and that was where I wrestled uh, my second match ever against Lord Jonathan Boyd. And then I had uh, a match with the Freebirds. I teamed with Ernie Ladd that day. I worked with Junkyard Dog. I think I wrestled like four times. And that night, Buck Robley asked me if I wanted to go work uh, uh, work a spot show that night. And I worked with Jonathan Boyd that night. But that was just when I was starting out before I actually came back later on, uh, I guess in 84, 85, Something on or maybe it's eighty six. Might have been eighty six. I'm not sure, but 
the way that came about is I came back from Portland um, for Christmas. I, I, I just flew in for Christmas, and there was a show at the Coliseum in Houston. I went down to see the guys, and Bill Dundee was booking. This was right at the end of the Midnight Rock and Roll Express angle, feud, match, series. So a lot of guys were leaving, and a lot of guys uh, – uh, th- there were spots coming available, and I told Bill I had already been in Portland for about a year, and uh, that was that was a great time too. That was uh, I, I had a, a a great experience in Portland, but it was time to move on. And I just mentioned to Bill if there was an opportunity or a spot that would come open, I would love to come back and work the territory and I went back to Oregon in January and shortly afterwards um, it might have been February or March I don't really recall uh, Dundee actually called me and asked if I'd like to come in now at the time um, and I have to say this too because there's you have your Defenders of Bill Watts, and you have your detractors. You have your lovers and haters. Some people love Bill. Some people didn't love him. Um, at that time, I really didn't have any opinion. Uh, but as I as I came in, there was no spot guarantee. There was there was nothing. It was just an opportunity. It was just to come in and work, and and that's all I was looking to do. And at that time in my life, at that time in my career, especially, I had this chip on my shoulder I had these nagging issues that uh I was taking care of in in a not not the greatest not how can I say it? not the greatest way in the world not the greatest way to, to handle my career. And I, I was very much a loner. I I had friends, yes, like Brad Armstrong and Tim Horner had an apartment, I believe it was in Baton Rouge or wherever we lived, either Baton Rouge or Alexandria. I can't remember which one. Uh, I think it was Baton Rouge. And and they said, just you can come and live with us because we were going to do 3,000 miles a week. And we did, and never home. So, um, But when I, when I got in there, uh, I, I, I ran the course. But later on, um, I, I realized, and especially looking back on history and, and talking to some of the people, especially talking to Jim Cornette and Ricky Morton, uh, even DiBiase and some of the guys and understanding the way Bill Watts did business, he wanted people to succeed. He wanted young guys to thrive and flourish so he could be able to send them out and get experience and, and send them out and become big stars. And that's what happened with a lot of the young guys who took advantage of of the opportunities in, in Mid-South. Um, and one of the opportunities that came to me, and, and this is another reason why I do respect, appreciate, and, and admire Bill Watts is because he came to me one night uh, and asked me if I had ever thought about being a heel. And, and again, this was at a time in my life when, oh my God, it was, it was, I was making really bad choices. And, and every time I go to the ring, I was supposed to be this 
young, fiery baby face. And I was feeling anything but being a young, fiery baby face, working with Ed Carbu, Thomas, and, and some of these guys who didn't have a clue what the business was, didn't appreciate the business, didn't, didn't have any understanding uh, how it worked, in my opinion. And when Bill took that initiative and actually came down and, and talked to me and asked me, have you ever thought about being a heel? I said, every day. He goes, yeah, I see that. When you walked in the ring, I see that. We're going to turn you heel next TV. And he did with, with Tim Horner. And, and I will always be appreciative for Bill Watts giving me the opportunity, especially in a place like Louisiana. I mean, it was, it was the rock and roll and midnight to, uh, came in and turned that place from a big man's territory, traditional big man's territory, and they turned that place upside down, drew money like never before, uh, record houses, and showed Bill Watts and, and everyone else that it's not about the size, it's about um, the delivery, it's about the presentation, it's about getting over, and, and that's what happened. Uh, so, yeah. Well, in the beginning, um, mid south, I, I just wasn't lending myself to um, a lot of things that I should have opened up for. And and I I do believe, quite honestly, that gives me an insight, especially for guys today, to, because I, I know the downfalls and I know what you cannot do, and I recognize those traits. And I uh, every time I do, I I, I want to warn everybody about that because that's that's not a good uh not a good attitude to have especially when you're starting out as a young guy in this business you need to be open you need to listen you need to listen to the good things and the bad things and you need to listen to things that people may not um who may not have your best interest at heart and you need to learn to have your bullshit detector out too so uh that the way i came about Working Mid-South in, in those days was right after Portland, uh, and it was Bill Dundee who who was kind enough. And, and again, I've had my I've had my ups and downs with Bill, but but he's another guy I do respect and admire uh, in the business. Um, but he he was he he brought me in and gave me an opportunity, and and after that, he even brought me to Memphis and, and gave me an opportunity. So that's how that happened. So what did you say? I know you said different people have different opinions of Watts and stuff, but what was kind of, I know you said you had no opinion at the time, but wrestling-wise, did you think, like, smart guy knows what he's doing, or did you think, like, uh, you know, this could improve, that can improve? Like, what, what were your thoughts of him as a promoter? I, I thought he was a great promoter. I thought he was a great businessman. I thought he was a great, uh, had a great mind for the business, certainly. Um, and he knew what he wanted. Uh, it was you know, and, and again, I knew about Eddie Graham growing up in the business and, and things like that, but all the great bookers and all the great top talent would go through Tampa to learn from Eddie Graham. And then that's where Bill Watts went. That's where Gary Hart went. That's, uh, you know, Dory Funk Sr. Uh, and Eddie Graham were, were peers, but from my understanding, Eddie learned from Dory Funk Sr. So I happened to watch you know, the funks growing up and I knew about Eddie, but Eddie had these complicated finishes and he, and he, he had this, uh, mind for the business and he knew 
what would make sense and draw for his territory. And I saw that in Bill Watts. I I, I saw that he had passion. Um, one time, another time, I, I remember I worked with Gino Hernandez, and I, it could have been I, – I don't recall what building it was, but I just remember that uh, uh, Gino was – was leading me through the match, no doubt, and I was listening, but uh, but I wasn't fighting back enough. And Watts came back and told me, he says, you don't, you can't die out there. And Gina was right there, too. He says, you've got to fight back when he's got you down. Uh, he says, and, and he pointed to Chavo. He said, Chavo works like a heavyweight. And he did. Chavo worked like a heavyweight. Bill would watch the matches. Bill would make observations. Um, and especially looking back on them now, they made sense. And uh, it was one of those deals where no matter what, and professional wrestling has always been sports entertainment, even though it wasn't labeled that way, <laughs> but it was, it's always been um, sports entertainment. And the entertainment part came with guys who who understood how to make this look like a competition. And I just watched a match the other night between Dr. Death uh, and Stan Hansen from Japan, and they are going at it. Yes, they're working, and yes, Japan is stiff, but but it was the work ethic, it was the work uh, ability and everything they did that meant something. And that they got their training from Bill Watts. So they, they got their wrestling education from, from Bill Watts. And I saw that on display uh, more than one time. And, and he was very involved. Bill was very involved. So, um, yeah, I thought he was a smart guy. I still think he's a smart guy. And, and all these years later, you know, I have regrets because I didn't go as deep as I should have. And I wasn't as uh, engaged as I should have been. But uh, at the same time, it was Bill Watts who gave me an opportunity to cut my teeth as a heel. And I found out from the first night, I I am a heel. Um, Especially in the ring and especially uh, during that time, and I always talk about being authentic and I talk about people... Uh, having to believe in you and and that for me it felt more natural and I had a I had a chip on my shoulder I had a lot of uh, uh, things that 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 I I was suppressing uh, that I could let out in the ring and without Bill Watts I don't know that that would have happened. Gino Hernandez possibly the municipal auditorium in Shreveport, Louisiana possibly Poss- possibly yeah very possible. Yeah. You had basically three runs that I could see from Mid-South. It was 79, then 82, and then 85 was, was kind of a, a bigger run. But in 79, you mentioned wrestling the Freebirds, and i got to mention this. Who the hell is Tom Price, and why was there uh, Tom Price? Uh, Paul Bosch told me uh, before I went to do these TVs, he said – you might want to use another name. And he didn't say anything else but that. He, uh, because I think what what, he, what Paul's line of thinking was, he knew I was going to go in and do jobs. That's what everybody does in the beginning. And 
that's why. And I, I thought, well, what what do I call myself? I really don't know. And I got the TV, and I just thought, uh, P-R-I-C, how about Price? How about just Tom Price? How about we do that? And it's very nondescript and very um, – then you come and go. There, there have been a couple people through the years. I really have, which kind of uh, was not, not shocking, but it was kind uh, of. Uh, it kind of made me wonder. That they asked me if I was Tom Price, and, and they've asked me on Twitter. They've asked me through Facebook, and uh, uh, so yeah, that was the reason why. Because I think uh, if I was going to come back at any time. Uh, I don't think they wanted to associate me with with that time. You know, th- this was mm-hmm. the time to get my reps, and this was the time to go on TV and get the living shit beat out of me and uh, do whatever we had to do. But but I was getting ready to go to Portland back then in 1980, but I got sidetracked and went to L.A. first. So that's why I think that was. As far as Tom Price and wrestling the Freebirds, at first in 79, teaming up with King Cobra. Who, uh, which is an interesting duo, uh, yes, for sure. Well, yeah, King King Cobra too. He was a guy, he was another guy I ran into through the years in in Memphis and Mississippi and Louisiana and uh, I think Pork Chop Cash might have been there at that, at the at the same time too in 1979 Louisiana. So, um, uh, and the reason I say that because I worked with Pork Chop a couple times in his uh, house shows and. Uh, Things like that, but uh, it, it was a very interesting uh, pairing. It was an interesting. Uh, it was an interesting uh, experience all way around. And um, I don't know if I told the story about even following Boyd Pierce to Shreveport after Houston that night, uh, where uh, I'm following Boyd after we we done Houston on a Friday night, and Boyd has to be. At in Shreveport in the morning for TV, he's doing commentary and ring announcing. Uh, and we wait, the matches are over. We get out of the Coliseum maybe 11 o'clock and start driving. We stop and eat dinner at this Lee's Inn Chinese place, and we're riding down uh, Interstate 10 going to Louisiana. Boyd's ahead of me. Uh, we're in the left lane, and uh, I'm listening to KLOL 101, the rock station in Houston. And they're in commercials, but I see this car coming behind me, headlights coming up pretty fast. So I get over in the right lane, and Boyd doesn't move. And this guy comes up, like, really fast, and Boyd's a couple car lengths ahead of me, obviously. Uh, And instead of passing Boyd on the right, this guy goes over to the shoulder of the road and rides the shoulder until he, we come to a he comes to a uh, a ramp and he hits the ramp the car goes on its side driver's side and it goes over a bridge Jeez. and as that as that happens now this is the true story this is it couldn't have happened any other way uh but this and it sounds like such bullshit when i say this but this is a true story KLOL comes out of commercials and as this guy goes over the Bridge, Highway to Hell comes on, <laughs> and I went, oh my God! And 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 I still get the the hair on my arms stand up still when I tell that story because it 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 was a, a what a way to start my road trip 
than seeing something like this. And over the years, and anybody who's been on the road <laughs> uh, for any amount of time, you're going to see things. Uh, and and but that that was the first real real road trip, I guess. My first road trip was my first match in in Bryan, Texas. But but at that time, um, man, it just those. That stuck with me. And then as the 80s progressed and all these things happened, I thought, wow, this this really is a highway to somewhere. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. Tidbit, I will circle this back around to the Freebirds in a second. Highway to Hell, SummerSlam 1998, I was there on the pre-show. Michael Hayes expertly sung Highway to Hell, which obviously that would be the tagline for the show with Austin versus Undertaker, but he expertly sung that song, went into the crowd, sung it, he did an awesome job, but I was just thinking, Highway to Hell, Michael Hayes, and I'll tie it back in. What did you think of Michael Hayes, 1979, meeting him at Mid-South, him and Terry Gordy are over like Rover? Yes, well, I, I remember uh, once we got to Shreveport, it was maybe 7.30 in the morning, and I'm thinking, I'm going to go in here and take a shower. I'm going to get all ready to go. No, it wasn't like that. We we pulled up to a television station. We're dressing in the offices, and the showers are on the other side of the of this building, and it's just a big mess. And, you know, go to a bathroom, brush my teeth, and kind of wash my face. But in the process, uh, everybody's kind of rolling in. Boyd and I are the first – well, we meet Bill. I meet Bill for the first time. Bill Watts for the first time as we walk in, say hello, and he's going over TV with the format. And uh, uh, Terry and Michael are out by the ring. They have a uh, monitor in the in the room where we were dressing, and Michael's cutting promos, and uh, he does about four of them, I guess, in a row. I thought this guy had been in business, and he had been in the business for, gosh, maybe three years at that time. I mean, he he and Terry both started young, uh, and I I I didn't know who they were, um, but it didn't take long to find out, and they were great guys. I mean, back then, Michael's really the same age. Uh, he and I are both the same age, and Terry was just a couple years younger. And uh, when we uh, did the match, uh, I, I took the backdrop into a pile driver, I believe was the move. And they just explained it to me. I said, sure. Uh, and it, when we did it and um, came back, and they were great guys. They they really were back then. And, and and Michael, you know, Michael gets a lot of heat, too, just because he's Michael. And, and, and once you know Michael, then you go, oh, okay. This is what it is, and and you either accept it or you don't. Um, you know, uh, Michael, did did you ever see Michael sing the national anthem, or ever hear nope. Michael sing the national? No, anthem? nope. Well, have you ever heard him sing Bad Street? Yes. Oh my yes. God. Yes. Okay. Well, at my wedding, we we played Bad Street, and uh, <laughs> we, we and he danced and he sang and. You know, Michael couldn't tear, carry a tune in the bucket, but I appreciate his creativity. I appreciate the fact that he has the balls to do it. And I think he's, for me, again, I, uh, as, as I've said many times, David Lee Roth is one of my favorite entertainers and, and front men. So, and Dave can't sing either. I'm not about to, if I want to hear singing, I'll, I'll hear something else. But that's that's not what this is about with Michael. Michael He's a great showman, he's a great entertainer, and he was back then, too. 
And um, everywhere I've seen Michael, he's always been the same Michael. Uh, he he and Terry were living the life, and we're going to live that life, uh, being that the wild and crazy Freebirds. And I don't know if you've heard all the rumors and, and innuendo, if you will, uh, about Michael Hayes, but chances are they're all true because I've seen him do so much ridiculous stuff, and and we've been kicked out of. We got kicked out of a place one time because we sat down. It was just Michael, Terry, and me. Um, don't remember the town. I just remember this was, I think, during the Georgia days. And Michael had, but there was an overhanging lamp uh, over uh, over the table we were sitting at. And Michael head butted it twice, and the manager immediately came over and says, "Nope, you guys are done." And, and escorted us out of the restaurant. Didn't phase him one bit. But that was just kind of, that was Michael. That was that was the kind of stuff he did. And uh, I I got I got that impression um, from day one that you know just showing up in the the TV studio uh, in in 1979, seeing these array of characters that I've watched and and. Now I'm I'm about to work with them. So uh, the Freebirds, my God, they were special from from the beginning, in my opinion. Love Freebirds, love Michael Hayes. Got to know this though. Did you ask him to sing at the wedding, or did he just take it upon himself? No, 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 no. He, yeah, we we did. He uh, he just did. I had the, I had the <laughs> uh, the CD and. We were in. Uh, I got married in Pigeon Forge at a, at a. We had a cabin. We had this. They they had like a uh, what's community room or whatever it is, man. And I I flew in. It, it was a day uh, where hell froze over. We were in in Charlotte. I think it was. We were supposed to fly out the next morning, and I was supposed to get married that 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 day that that night. And they canceled all the flights. Well, Michael. Um, and it was Michael Bruce and me, and he we rented a car, and, and I, I had been up all night. <laughs> I was I was getting married that that next day, and the guys on the crew, uh, the production crew. First of all, Bruce took me to a very nice establishment, and Edge and Val Venus and a couple of the boys stopped by. Michael stopped by, but Michael wasn't feeling real well, so Michael didn't stay. Um. Very long, but but the next morning, you know, and actually, actually, as we came back from this establishment at like two thirty in the morning, um, the camera guys and the production crew they have their own bus, and they instead of going in the hotel, they pretty much just redirected me to the bus, and we stood up or we stayed up and and read scripture all night, you know, uh, John three sixteen and and Job and things like that. That's what we did all night long. We read scripture. So uh, <laughs> as I'm bleary-eyed, you know, mm. and it's like 5 in the morning, I said, dude, i got to catch a plane at 7. Holy shit. So I, I, I staggered into the hotel and went up, and I thought, do I have time to take a shower? I've got to. So I, I, I took like a, a five-minute shower, just just put water on my face and, and, and eyes and, and dressed, and my bag was already packed. And we left for the hotel. We left for the airport, and we got there, and 
Flights were canceled. Michael says, all right, we're driving. I rented a car. We drove. He got us through the mountains, man, and I was <laughs> not the whole way. I, I did crash, I think, halfway. But I would do the thing, you know, where you point somebody's head and go, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching mm-hmm, you. I'm mm-hmm. Michael. Yeah, just because that's Michael, and he's used to it. So anyway, but, yeah, Michael, that night, uh, we, we – <laughs> uh, my wife was – taking care of everything down this end. And uh but she had champagne there and Michael um had a couple glasses and bottles of champagne. And uh as I played the Freebird uh Bad Street, it's just like I said, dude, just sing it for us, please. Hmm. And he did. I mean it was just it was because I wanted that kind of wedding and it was great and and you know, I I think the guests enjoyed it too. Or at least if they didn't enjoy it they they uh, remembered it. Absolutely, yeah. How could you yeah. forget? You can't, can't forget something like that. It's, no, it's no. just absolutely uh, epic. But yes. as, far, as far as kind of moving along in, in Mid-South and you being there, obviously a couple, several different partners, you're wrestling the Freebirds kind of along the way as they you know, are on top of that territory. But what are those road trips? Like you mentioned 3,000 miles, long trip. I mean, is that just brutal? Is that just terrible? Is the territory too big? Well, I I think it's as brutal and terrible as you make it. And quite honestly, you know, I met DiBiase there. I met Dr. Death there. Um, uh, I met a lot of really cool people there. And I, I honestly didn't mind traveling back then. Uh, it's still new. No, I don't know about new, but it was, it was still what we, what you did. It was still, you have to spend your time somehow. And, and I was living with Brad and, and uh, Tim at the time, and we would either go to the gym or if we had to get up early and leave, we'd, we'd go to the gym some other time. But, but we were having a blast traveling in the cars back then. It Was it two-lane highways? Yes. Could it be brutal at times? Yes. But at the same time, we were doing something we absolutely loved. Uh, it wasn't a regular job, nine to five. We would go to some great buildings with some great wrestling fans. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun, you know. And, and at that time, I mean, really, you just you're really learning your craft and and that was part of the craft back then. It it taught you how to be on time because Bill Watts would certainly find you if you weren't on time. And uh it was your life. The guys with the families uh, understandably was a lot tougher. But we were the family, Brad, Tim and I. <laughs> we 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 uh lived together, traveled together and uh, if we were on different towns, which sometimes we were, we'd find a way to to make it and and adjust. And back then, uh, you you could have fun in the cars. You know, it, it was it wasn't as bad for some as it was for others, obviously. And uh, I can understand how how some people would think it would be brutal and and. Horrible, and there were some treacherous roads, and some bad things did happen down there at times on the roads, and uh, but they were going to happen everywhere. Uh, so, I, I I certainly at that time I wasn't minding the road trips. It's it kept me busy. I, I liked being busy. I like, I mean, I loved wrestling. I loved going to the buildings. I loved the 
the uh, ambiance of what we were doing. I loved it all. How was the territory itself back in 79? Was it a great territory? Was it thriving? Was there you know, a lot of fans in attendance for each show? Well, in 79, I, only, I was only there for a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I started in October 79. I only did the TVs and a couple shows. But when I came back uh, and started working the territory, um, it, it was, uh, once again, right after the rock and roll and, and midnight uh, angle and feud and, and their matches. So once I turned heel, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, because now I've reached this point in my life where there's, I, I, I don't even try to explain it to myself even, but I've, I've always had a problem <laughs> or it takes me a little while to warm up to people. Uh, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know why, but Ted DiBiase is a great guy. He really, really is. He's one of the boys. He was a top guy back then. He's always been a top guy. He's always had that talent and reputation. And when I turned heel, I could no longer ride with Brad and Tim. They were still baby faces. And one day, uh, I had to meet him at, at oh, I can't remember the hotel, but met him at the hotel. He just got a red 280Z. And I don't really know Ted that well at this time. And I'm kind of, I don't want to say anything to bury myself. I don't want to say anything because I'm just... Uh, I, I guess it's nerves or it's just my anxiety about whatever it is that, that kept me from getting close to people. And we make small talk on the way down, and we're going to Shreveport, and Shreveport had a reputation of being a pretty rough town. A lot of those towns, the fans were pretty rugged, man. I mean, they were, they were Cajuns, and they were wrestling fans, and they were hardworking people. They didn't mind fighting, and I saw many nights back in the 80s when the fans would try and take a poke at somebody and the cops would bring them back, take them in a room and just do whatever they did behind closed doors. I, I never actually witnessed anything, but but uh, Teddy and I drove to Shreveport this day and um, this is my first house show as a heel. And Teddy pulls in uh, and parks, and there's about 10, 12 people standing around where the, where the guy's parked. So we get out, and there's just one loudmouth, and he's saying something, and people are kind of gathering around. And and uh, he said, I don't don't remember what he said, but Teddy looked at him said, and said something back, and they just slapped this guy down. Hit him so hard, he slapped him, and the guy took a bump. Now I'm thinking, I'm looking around with all the rest of these people, and I'm going, oh, Christ, here we go. But I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm prepared. I, I'm going to go down swinging no matter what happens. But they just kind of step back. They don't scatter, but they step back. We grab our bags, and Teddy says, keep walking. So we just kept walking. And nobody, nobody said uh, anything to us the, the, the rest of the time. But. The interesting thing about that is a couple of years ago, three years ago, I guess, maybe, on whatever it was, I saved it to my phone. A guy sent me a Facebook message asking me if I remembered that, and he sent me pictures. He was out there standing there, and he sent me pictures of it. And you can see I'm standing with my back uh, 
to the camera with Teddy and her getting her bags, and then you see Teddy, you can see me standing next to Teddy, I guess, as we're walking. Uh, he remembered that he, he sent it to me, and there were only about 10 people out there, but but that was that was kind of one of the hairy, hairy, hairier things I thought was going to happen, but um, that was that was the cool thing about wrestling back then because you had your people who were weekly diehard fans who believed, believed, believed. You had people who knew it wasn't, and you had your people who who didn't believe, didn't want to believe, want to have have a good time. But uh, you you had those kind of passionate wrestling fans, and the boys were passionate about the business. They had respect for the business, and. Uh, the people running the business. Um, of course, it was old school. Of course, it was, you couldn't do that today. I don't think, unless you did it right. And what what's the right way to do it in this day of um, instant information and and everybody knowing everything going on? I don't know. Uh, but back then, when you had an incident where somebody would reach out and hit you, and I've had it a couple times, and I had. Uh, an old man in Birmingham hit me with his cane one time. He was a regular. He was on the front row. He hit, hit me with his cane. Didn't do anything. The cops talked to him that night and came back and said, asked me if I want to press charges. The guy was in his 70s, man. No, I don't want to press charges. I'm, I'm, I'm happy he felt that way. But the next week, Lonnie West called me and said, this guy is giving the cops shit and they wanted to go to court and just want you to show up just to scare him so he doesn't do it again. Just just like the very next week. So I so I had to go down early before the show and I sat there and I said, uh, Judge, I don't want to press charges. Um and I think that was it. Uh and, and he sat on the front row again. But I mean they didn't want him sitting there and thinking he could get away with it. And that that mm-hmm. was the the idea. But man, Louisiana taught you um, how to how to work with those kind of people, how to get that kind of heat. I mean, I'm sure you heard the story about people pulling uh, a guy pulling a gun on Michael Hayes after he blinded JYD, and, and yep. you know, and and Dog is deciding whether he should you know, break kayfabe or not, do I take this guy out or what? And he decided not to. You know, they, you how does that happen? You know, with intelligent people, how does that happen? If everybody knew it was a work back then, but but you still had your doubters, you still had people who went, hmm, this this guy might might have a little little too much heat on. Michael was one of those those heels, as a Jim Cornette was, who who had legitimate, real heat because he was not phony; he was authentic, and uh, that was that was a real cool vibe back then in my opinion um different time different era and i i beat that dead horse all the time when i say different time different era but i have to stress that because the business has changed so much and you need a guy like bill watts who at least knows how to put some authenticity back into it in my opinion so you're rolling along in 1985, and, and you're a heel. How are the payoffs? How's the pay from Watts? I mean, obviously, they were kind of hot, as you said, with um, the Midnight running through against Rock and Roll Express, that being a huge view for them. Dundee really kind of dominating as the booker. How are the payoffs and everything like that? I, I have no complaint about the payoffs, especially. I mean, I, I was 
I want to say we were all making close to twelve, fifteen hundred dollars a week for the underneath guys or or middle of the road guys, uh, and so no telling what the main event guys were making. Uh, we we were fine. I was certainly fine with the payoffs. Um, you know, we were all driving in a car. We all split gas. We uh, we would we would trade off driving. I would drive one week. Brad drive his next week, and maybe Tim would drive his the next week. So. Uh, at that time, being in the business and making a living, uh, it was it was great for me. Um, I was around. I, I had known Tim. I had known Brad. You know, I was comfortable around those guys, so I was around people I was comfortable around, and and then I was getting to know Duggan, you know, and and guys like that. And I, you know, and and uh, yeah, I just. Yeah, it was a great time. Great time. So many great wrestlers came through that territory at one point or another. I mean, you mentioned Dr. Death, the Freebirds, Ed DiBiase, Jim Duggan. I mean, my guy, a little bit later on, obviously, One Man Gang, Big Boss Man. I mean, the list, Butch Reed. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Obviously, JYD was a god down there. But what were your kind of thoughts of the like the talent level as compared to the popularity I mean, there were so many great guys there, but on a national level, did you think it was as popular as it could have been? Or it, obviously, it's much more territorial. But do you think it should have been on a national level? Well, once again, here's here was the process, and and I knew it as it was happening, but I wasn't acting on it. A, a territory like Louisiana or or a territory like Tampa was was the breeding ground or the learning ground the the, the learning center I guess uh, to to groom you for the next step because they knew you had Ernie Ladd there and Bill Watts and Grizzly Smith and people who understood the business who could tell you what to do when to do it give you sound advice and and have logical psychology which when you were done there, they would call Atlanta or they would call Charlotte, uh, New York, and say, hey, we've got this kid, and uh, we've groomed him. You might want to take a look at him. And that's what happened with so many guys like Magnum and Arn, uh, Rick Rude, um, Buddy Landell. My God, there were so many guys who who were groomed, and that's, that's what that was for. Uh, I think – because it was the territory system, it worked much better because now, uh, again, just an observation, in FCW, we didn't do TV on a national basis. Um, it was it was groomed. It was designed to be developmental. Now NXT is your brand that people have already seen these guys. On Wednesday nights, you can watch them on a national national show. That that's a double edged sword, in my opinion. Uh, they don't get a chance to make mistakes without anyone seeing. They're, they're on full display, which which is again that's a good thing to a point. But but then you're not really fresh when you go to Raw or SmackDown. I think that kind of uh, you you've seen these guys. They 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 done what they do in developmental, then all of a sudden they come to Raw and SmackDown and, and something changes. Whatever it is that changes, I don't know what that is. Uh, I mean, I have an idea. Uh, it, it's, it's the vibe. It's the environment. 
Um, it's the the mindset. Uh, but that was Louisiana, and, and that was Tampa, uh, and in places back then, promoters talked to each other all the time because they're always looking for new talent. Even though you, you think they might have been mad at each other and all that stuff, no, 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 no. They were still uh, the pipeline was still. They were still networking. They were still talking to each other because they they needed to move talent around. It's it's been that way since the advent of New age professional wrestling, I think, from the National Wrestling Alliance trying to start in in, in 1949 or 48, whatever. Um, it continued through the 80s because that was the only other way um, you could get a good top talent to come in, you know. Or Portland was a, was a a grooming territory, you know. Snooka, Piper, Buddy Rose. Rip Oliver. Uh, some guys homesteaded there, like Buddy and Rip, and, and some guys like Smooka and Piper became national, worldwide names. National, worldwide names. Hell, they were national and worldwide names. Mm-hmm. But but um, that was <laughs> that was the idea back then. I think to send them somewhere to get get uh, some some reps in and get experience under their belt and then come to a national promotion and uh, be a top guy. Was this the first time it probably, I mean, I'm guessing it was that you were paired up with Pat Rose, obviously later on in, in Memphis, I believe you guys would kind of become the, uh, the heavenly bodies, not the original, original heavenly bodies, but the original for you heavenly bodies. But was this in mid South the first time you ever seen with Pat Rose? Yeah, I believe it was. And and when Bill was leaving and going to Memphis, he uh wanted to put us together in Memphis because he was now putting putting his team together. It was time for him to leave and uh, you had a new book. I think Eddie Gilbert was now going to take over the book in Louisiana. So yeah, it was. And um so we teamed I think a couple times in in Louisiana, then we came to uh Memphis with Dundee. And that was the first time I remember Pat asking Bill, what do we have to do to get a break? And Bill said, first of all, you have to have somebody like you. And I thought, wow, I, I, I knew that. I understood all that, but I wasn't taking the steps to make all that happen. But uh, yeah, that was the first, first time we did. The first time we teamed, I think. Was that the first time you wrestled the Fantastics as well? Uh, in Memphis, I believe it was. Yes. Because in 1985 in Mid-South, you guys have a little bit of a run, you and Pat Rose, wrestling the Fantastics, Fulton and Rogers, of course, um, a bunch of times. Like, what were your kind of thoughts of those two? Because they're an- another ones that you say, like, kind of, they get, you know, like good steam going there, good breeding ground. They kind of build their name up and then go to Crockett and, you know, are great in Crockett, too. Right. I, I knew Tommy um, from Atlanta, and I met Bobby prior to going um, to Louisiana, too. So I met Bobby, I think. Whew, might have been in Memphis. But I know I, I had known both of those guys before uh, we got to Atlanta. So, yeah, if, uh, I, I've never had a bad match with those guys. That's the other thing. Um, now, Bobby and Jackie. <laughs> ooh. But Bobby and Tommy were, I think, the original uh, Fantastics and the original 
team that that gelled really good together. And um, I, I yeah, it, it was always it was always and it still is, in my opinion, again, to go into the ring with somebody that you get and you like and know you're not going to get hurt with. So, but I thought we had great matches then and thought we had great matches in uh, Memphis. And we were talking about Dundee and kind of the on-again, off-again, I guess, relationship with him. But what about him as the wrestler, working him, and, you know, being a part of a mini-feud, I guess you could say, with him? Well... (laughs) In one night in Alexandria, Louisiana, um, we there was a battle royal, and I had been in these matches, as I said earlier, against Ed Carboo and 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 some other guys. Uh, that, that just I it was it was like pulling teeth on my end, and plus uh, I was um, living in 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 another in I. I I wasn't grasping what I needed to grasp. Let me say it that way. But I was. Uh, we were in Louis in Alexandria, and uh, we had a battle royal. And I just, for some reason, this just kept. I think I had a stinker of a match that night too. Then everybody had to come back for the battle royal. And we got in the ring, and uh, I kept. I kept going after Bill. I kept trying to lock up with him. And I, oh, what it was is somebody had knocked him down. And I came over to him and I kicked him in the head. But I was, it was working kicks. And I said, this is for Houston. This is for Shreveport. This is for all the towns. I had all these crappy matches. And and I'm laughing, but, but, he, but I'm not in the ring. I'm kind of, I'm working with him, but he doesn't know that I'm not. He, he doesn't know that I'm working, I guess, because... He gets up and he grabs me and puts me against the ropes. And Ricky Morton's there too. And and Bill says, "Ricky, get this son of a bitch. Grab his arm." So he grabs my arm. Ricky grabs my arm, and Bill grabs the other arm. Now I'm 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 against the ropes. It's a battle royal. Ricky has one arm. Dundee has the other. And and Ricky comes with the forearm across my chest. Bill comes with a forearm, you know, with his fist down across my nose. And my nose starts. It just busts open bleeding and uh i don't sell it and bill says, i'm getting away from you and pushes me away and then goes over and gets eliminated i'm not mad ricky grabs me and says come with me holy shit what was that about so i have no idea i go back to the dressing room and he's nowhere to be found i go to shake his hand i go to say hello or thank you very much and he's no bill is nowhere to be found until the next day because what was wrong with you last i said bill i was just working Why'd you hit me in the nose? So oh, it was an accident. <laughs> yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. But but you know, Bill was a great worker. Bill Dundee, um, he's another guy who gets short change on a lot of his stuff because. Uh, but I, I thought Bill was creative. I thought he was a great worker. Um, and once I really got to know him, uh, you know, he overcame a lot of obstacles. He had a lot of issues when he first came over here and that he had to fight through and work through. And, and I, I learned this later on, but I, I will preach it now from the day till the day I die. You have to have confidence. You have to believe in yourself. If you're going to be a success in anything. And Bill believed in himself uh, when nobody else did. And he had to fight for it. And that's what you have to do. So, 
I give him credit for doing that because it would have been easier to just have an attitude like I did. And you can't do that. You have to, you have to understand what kind of business you're in. You have to understand the kind of people you're around and, and who controls it and what you need to do to control your own destiny. It's, it's a learning process and it can be a scary one to, uh, apply it and even acknowledge it but Bill Dundee did and I every time we went out there we had good matches and uh, <laughs> you know we I I some people might think I'm crazy I know that might be hard to find be believe but but there were times when I was crazy you know and I was uh uh out on the road, living life and, and waiting to get to the next town and all the stuff in between was immaterial to me. As long as I got to wrestle that night, that's all I cared about. And I think Dundee in in a lot of ways had that passion and uh, that work ethic to go out there and do what he did. And uh, I give him all the respect and props for what he's done, not just in Memphis, but for going to Louisiana and changing that territory forever, drawing record houses with with his guys and and being as creative as he was. Because I I don't think Watts could see it until it was before his very eyes. And and, and I don't think Watts would believe it until the facts just rang up differently and and showed that you can take guys – they don't always have to be six foot five, three hundred pounds. You can take guys smaller, and as long as they have excitement and charisma and know how to work, you can do great business. What about good old Brickhouse Brown? A little bit of a food with him down there. What did you think about good old Brickhouse? I liked Brickhouse, man. I really did. Uh, Brickhouse, uh, look, the '80s was uh, hectic turbulent time for a lot of people in the business. Not not everyone, but uh, Brickhouse was one of those guys who, you know, I've read his story, and he's told me this before himself. You know, he, he wasn't smartened up right away, and he wasn't even smartened up for his first match, and um, he learned, though, and, and some people liked him, some people didn't. I did. I happened to like Brickhouse. He he was entertaining to me. Um, I, I never had a problem with him in the ring. I never had a problem with him out of the ring. Um, so I, I think he was one of those guys that, I'll use an example, may not be a great one, but, but like New Jack, if you, if you understood where he stood and you respected that, then you were okay. But if you thought you were going to uh, – force your feelings and your beliefs on him, then he was going to tell you and show you differently. So um, as long as I think there was a mutual line of respect there, he was okay. I think you teamed with Pat Rose uh, quite a bit in in Mid-South, but also teamed with at one point Dutch Mantel, Dirty Dutch. Did you like working with Dutch? I loved working with Dutch. Dutch Dutch was... (laughs) Such a uh, a great storyteller, not just uh, verbally but physically. He understood body language. He understood how to get the most out of less, and uh, he he's, he was always 
fun and entertaining to be around and enjoyable. That's another word. He, he was enjoyable to be around because he he could be so funny. And, uh, you know, we're, we're telling stories in the ring, but not everybody's a great storyteller and not everybody can can make that happen. And I, I, I tell everybody this too. What we do in the ring really is a small percentage. It's uh, the, the larger picture is backstage. And Dutch knew how to do that. Dutch knew how to manipulate backstage. And if it was a, a different idea than what was originally uh, agreed upon, Dutch knew how to change it and make you think it was the greatest idea in the world. And he would even, if need be, he would even convince you that it was your idea to begin with. Hmm. And and that's talent. That's that's the art of what this is. It's it really is such a. It was even more of a con back then. And and Dutch was that kind of guy. He 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 had a story for everything. Uh, pretty intelligent guy too, and I enjoyed uh, talking politics with him. I enjoyed talking other subjects with him besides just wrestling. He could talk about anything to anybody. Now, one of your last matches there is really against Mike Graham in the summer of '85. Do you remember this I, match at all? I do. I do. I do. I, I tell you why because Mike uh, Mike reminded me of it, and and we watched it. And um, I think I worked with Mike on a couple of occasions, but Mike, uh, yeah, when, when was it? Mike, what was Mike was a pretty easygoing guy from the very first time I met him, and not everybody I, I've not I've not got that uh, feeling from everybody about Mike, but. Uh, from the first time I met him, he, he was, he was very cool. And, and, uh, I think that goes back to the respect thing. Um, so yeah, I do actually, I do remember that match. And I remember Mike always in Tampa, he brought that up and, and brought, brought it up more than one occasion. Why? I don't know. Cause I don't think it was a, uh, Briscoe funk match by any means. It was a TV match. And we worked a couple other times too, I think. Now, as far as kind of just like your overall thoughts and territory, I know it's kind of a breeding ground. It's kind of the place you, you go to learn and stuff. Did you like working there? Do you feel like you learned a lot working there? Obviously, you gained some good friendships and maintained that friendship with Brad Armstrong and stuff. But what did you think about the territory overall? I, I thought it was a great territory, and you had these great uh, workers. You had Jake in there. You had John Nord who would come in and learn. You had Duggan who was – God Almighty! Again, entertaining backstage, and, and and when you're on the road that much, you need you need entertainment. You need to have some form of insanity um, with the chaos that that makes it all come out sane. If that makes any any sense whatsoever, you add some insanity to the chaos and. And the two uh, ingredients together bring you some some kind of sanity out of it all because uh, you you did travel eight hours to get to a town or, or six hours or whatever it might be on that day, and you don't want to be around a bunch of uh, gloom, god, 
this is terrible. No, you don't. You don't. You want to laugh. You want to. You want to go out and have a great match, and and you want to have people come in and and good people to be around. And and I believe that was what it was back then. And uh, Jake, God Almighty, man, just just being around Jake during that time. And I, I, I remember a trip I made with Jake. Jake was driving. Grizz was asleep in the back. And the conversation Jake and I had, um, couldn't tell you what it is now, but I'll tell you, we, we, we didn't close our eyes one time and we laughed a lot. So, uh, those kind of personalities, I don't, I know they exist today. I just don't know that, um, they exist in the realm of, uh, the reality we had back then, because the reality we had back then is certainly different than the reality of the business today. It, it's a it's a totally different concept, and um, uh, if you've never known anything different, then there's no nothing to compare it to. And uh, you know, I recently saw a little short clip of Friday Night in the Coliseum that this guy filmed back in 1970s. And Paul Bosch is talking about people always saying how wrestling's not like it was when I was a boy. He goes, "Well, wrestling wasn't isn't like it isn't like it was when I was a boy either, and it's not like it was when anybody, you know, was a child because we grow up and it and it becomes different, and you have to evolve." and And I get it, but but for the time and era in Mid South wrestling, and for the characters and per- personalities that were around back then, um. It was it was what was needed at that time. Uh, you had guys who uh, kept everything alive and kept things jumping and, and and kept you on your toes and and traveling those extra miles and traveling all night and all day and and being around everybody all the time. It it will mold you one way or another and. Um, I think the business molds you one way or another, no matter what era you're in. But I, I was happy to be molded that way. It was, uh, it was something that I, I was uh, glad to be a part of. Was happy to be a part of. As far as stopping point, I think this is a great one, and it's a great time to mention the plugs. So go to ProWrestlingTees.com. Go to the JPWA store. Go to Dr. Tom's store. I love the Wanted Dead or Alive shirt. I always mention it every week. Love that shirt. Definitely go out and pick that up at Dr. Tom's Pro Wrestling Tea store. You can also go to Patreon. The pages that set up, you can become a patron and support a JPWA. JPWA's website is jpwrestlingacademy.com. And I want to mention Dr. Tom's book, a complete one-year training curriculum and guide for beginners and seasoned pros. It is a pro wrestling curriculum, advice, suggestions, and stories to help the aspiring pro get to the next level. Dr. Tom, what do you have to say about this great book and where the fans can get it? Oh, I, I think you, anybody can get it on uh, Amazon. But if you would like your own signed, personally autographed copy, uh, just go to PayPal. The, my PayPal is drtompritchard at AOL.com. Put your name, address, and who you would like to make it out, who you'd like me to make it out to, 
and I will send you a personally autographed copy. I'm still waiting on the books to come in. They are due to be in. Originally, it was May 18th. Now they sent me a notice saying it will be May 20th. Um, and I have some books waiting to be sent out, or I have some some uh, addresses waiting to be names waiting to be sent out. Uh, but they'll be here shortly. And uh, Amazon or or personal autograph copy PayPal at uh, or Dr. Tom Pritchard at AOL.com. And real quick, June first, JPWA reopens. All information is on the website JPWrestlingAcademy.com. Nice. Love that. And of course, Dr. Tom is on Twitter at Dr. Tom Pritchard and I am at Two Man Power Trip if you want to follow us there. In the meantime, uh, maintain the social distance, of course. Wash those hands. Stay clean. And we will see you right here next week on Taking You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. What the world is downloading.